5. We'll look at verses 1 to 12 this morning. As we turn to Matthew 5, we begin to examine the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. At least that's where it is in Matthew's Gospel. John Stott calls the Sermon on the Mount the best-known, least-understood, and least-obeyed portion of all Jesus' teaching. The truth is, the Sermon on the Mount is a controversial thing. It's been interpreted in many ways. Uh, I, I learned of at least 12 different ways. Uh, Harvey Mac- uh, MacArthur speaks of the versions and evasions of the Sermon on the Mount. For example, some want to make the Sermon, sermon on the Mount only a social ethic, a pattern for society apart from any relationship with the gospel. Some want to make the Sermon on the Mount a new, admittedly unattainable law that is there only to, uh, though we could never uh, obey it, it's there only to, to drive us to the gospel. Others uh, say the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with us. This is for a future millennial period after Christ returns. Therefore, it's irrelevant for the church today. Like the writer said, versions and evasions of the Sermon on the Mount. Nonetheless, today we begin to make our way through this wonderful part of God's Word. Specifically today, we start with the Beatitudes. That's uh, what we have here in the first part of chapter 5. Next to John 3.16 and the 23rd Psalm, the Beatitudes are probably the most well-known portion of the Bible. But the fact that the words are familiar does not mean that we've mastered this text. So let's read it, and we'll talk about it, and hopefully make a few more inches of progress today. Let me read it. Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our first challenge when we come to the Beatitudes is um, how to divide this familiar passage into uh, points that we can kind of get a hold of. So as I look at it, we could, we could have eight points, one for each of the Beatitudes, uh, or maybe we could have two points, um, one addressing the promises made, theirs is the kingdom, they will inherit the earth, they will see God, etc., and the other describing the condition of those who are called blessed, the poor, the meek, the grieving, the persecuted, etc. I've decided two points is better than eight, unless we're going to be here uh, for a couple of months. So I don't mean be here for a couple of months this morning, I mean in this study for a couple of months. So two points this morning. The first is this. Jesus promises his followers the joys of God's kingdom. Jesus promises his followers followers the joys of God's kingdom. You know, blessed is a really churchy word, isn't it? Does anybody use the word blessed except us? So what does it actually mean? Well, I looked it up in my lexicons. 
Lonida, which is good lactocon, says, it pertains to being happy, enjoying favorable circumstances. Kittle is a little more, a little more uh, focused. He says, it refers overwhelmingly to the distinctive religious joy which comes from one's share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. That's certainly what it is here. So as I put it, Jesus promises his followers the joys, the blessedness of God's kingdom. But Jesus does not leave us wondering what those joys uh, will be. He spells them out in the second part of each of these uh, statements. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. That's the that's the blessedness. Theirs is the kingdom. So I want to just go through and talk about these. I'm going to take them a little bit out of order, but I'll tell you where I am. First of all, in verse 3 and then again in verse 10, we read, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is nothing less than a share in the benefits of Christ's reign. All the joys which his salvation will bring to the earth. This is the opposite of estrangement and lack of belonging, which the poor often experience in this life. But Jesus promises his followers, specifically the poor, the joys of inheriting the kingdom. In verse 7, it says, they shall receive mercy. This is the forgiveness of sins one must receive if he or she is ever to know any joy in any relationship with God. In his penitential psalms, David uh, graphically describes what life is like apart from God's mercy. He says things like, there's no health in my bones. My iniquities have gone over my head. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan uh, uh, because of the tumult of my heart. But Jesus promises the joy of sins forgiven, covered, paid. That's the joy of his kingdom. In verse 9, he says they should be called sons of God. This is a blessing of being adopted by God. No longer a stranger and alien, no longer an outsider to all the promises, no longer a lack of meaningful identity. Jesus promises, promises his followers the joy of sonship, a new nature, a new name, a new life, a new inheritance from the Father. In verse 6, it says they shall be satisfied, that is, uh, with righteousness. This is uh, the, what it is. This means to, to be holy as God is holy. To stand before God clean, right in his eyes. To live a life that pleases him rather than write a life that brings him shame. To quote the Apostle Paul, this means to no longer be foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. No, no more. For Jesus promises his followers the joy of a righteous life. Verse 4, it says they shall be comforted. This is to have your soul find rest and encouragement where there is none to be found in this world. Oh, when you're having a bad day, your friend might call you with a kind word or message you with an inspirational thought. But what comfort is there when you look death in the face? Or when you fail so miserably, you feel suicidal. Those are the times when the only thing that can comfort you is the peace which God is able to speak to your heart that no one else can speak there. The renewal of your inner person with grace straight from the Lord Jesus. Jesus promises his followers 
the joy of the Spirit of God indwelling us, the divine comforter and counselor who renews our souls. Verse 5 says, they shall inherit the earth. This is a promise that stretches far out into the future. This is a promise which envisions the victorious reign of Christ, the restoration of all things in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, most of us won't inherit much in this life. Perhaps a used car and a house that needs a lot of repairs by now. Perhaps a little nest egg and a door full of bills waiting to be paid. But when the kingdom of God is complete, Jesus promises us not just the land of Canaan like he promised Israel, not just a postage-sized piece of real estate in the Middle East as the Jews wait for. Jesus promises followers the joy of inheriting with him the whole earth. The whole earth. And best of all, verse 8, we're promised they will see God. This is what theologians have called the beatific vision. We know that the Bible teaches that God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. But the Bible also teaches us that when God reveals himself to us in heaven, we will no longer see him through a glass darkly. We will see him face to face. We cannot comprehend such things, for God is spirit, not flesh and blood like we are. But Jesus promises his followers the joy... (coughs) the joy of knowing God right now through the eyes of faith. And one day, living in perfect face-to-face relationship with our Creator. These joys of God's kingdom encompass all the spiritual blessings we long for, folks. We long to have our sins forgiven, to belong to God, to be right in His eyes. We long to enjoy his presence, to have his comfort, to bear his name. And we long to know him, to share his his inheritance, and to one day see him face to face. And Jesus promises all those joys, those blessings of God's kingdom. And we already have begun to taste the beginning of them in Christ. So I guess uh, life in this kingdom, which has now appeared... And Jesus is a pretty smooth ride from here on out, huh? No. For though we have some of this already, we do not yet have it all. And for these things we wait. Which then brings us to our second point. God meets us in our brokenness. God meets us in our brokenness. We are so performance-oriented. It's difficult for us to get our head around what Jesus calls blessed here. We see no benefit in in being poor, for example. So we would say, blessed are the rich, the full, the affluent. We see no beauty in those who are mourning or grief-stricken. No, we feel much comfortable saying, blessed are the happy and contented. And we all know the meek are weak. So we would say, blessed are the bold and and impertinent. And what's the appeal of being hungry? That's dumb. 
So, so we would say, blessed are the full, the satiated, the satisfied. Street sense tells us it's dangerous to show mercy. So we'd say, blessed are the hard and, and unsympathetic because they will survive in this world. And pure, everyone knows that being pure is no longer attractive. It's more realistic to say, blessed are those who fake it well, who are immodest, even vulgar. These days, peacemakers are just making themselves targets. It makes more sense to say, blessed are the instigators and the agitators. They'll get what they want. And why would anyone put up with persecution? Don't we really believe blessed are those who are assisted and protected and rewarded, not persecuted? Make no mistake, the modern Beatitudes would sound much different than what Jesus said. But Jesus knows that God stands by his promises, and Jesus also knows that God meets us in our brokenness, not in our finery, not in our luxury. So we read, blessed are the poor. Not the material, materially poor, otherwise it would be wrong to help somebody that's poor. You'd be uh, robbing them of Jesus' blessing. And not poverty of nature, of somebody is being of no value and not poor spirited, lacking drive or initiative and not self-deprecating as if we have no gifts and abilities not poverty of spiritual life where we give no attention to our souls no, Jesus is talking about a poverty of spirit as one writer describes it the consciousness that we do not have in ourselves the abilities that would make us worthy of God's favor You're blessed to realize that. How poor you are. For that's where God meets us. In our brokenness. Our poverty of spirit. In verse 4 we read, Blessed are those who mourn. This is not necessarily talking about bereavement, about the contrition, but about contrition or sorrow for sin. Not the loss of loved ones, but the loss of innocence, the loss of favor with God. This is the very opposite of the eat, drink, and be merry attitude that prevails in our day. This is describing one who weeps over sin, his own sin, and the sins of those around him. Unfortunately, we've become too sophisticated for that, have we not? We would consider such a person that's weeping for their sin and the sins for others perhaps a little emotionally unbalanced. But like it or not, that's where God meets us. In our grief, in our mourning, for how far we fall short of his favor. Verse 5, we read, blessed are the meek. Now that just sounds absurd. We all know better. This just can't be true. Surely the ones to inherit the earth will be the strong, the defiant, the cutthroat. And But Jesus calls for meekness. So what's he saying? Interestingly, word, interestingly, the word for meek is used for domesticated animals. Those who have learned to accept control by their masters. Those who have learned how to behave. Psalm 37 speaks of the meek as those who trust the Lord, delight themselves in him and walk in his ways. But we're not meek by nature, are we? We're defiant by nature. 
It's the hard knocks of life that beat us down and make us meek. And praise God for the school of hard knocks, for God meets us in our brokenness, not our competence. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. Have you ever been hungry? I mean, really, really, really hungry? I think I've been hung- really hungry one time in my whole life. It has a narrowing effect on your interests. All you can think about is food and water. Jesus is commending those who have such an insatiable hunger for righteousness. So how does one come to such a hunger for righteousness? Probably by trying everything they know to be better and failing every time they try to make progress. Probably by repeatedly turning over a new leaf to fail the next day. Slowly and steadily, our hope of ever changing, of ever being what we ought to be, just slowly dies. And finally, God has us where we can be helped. For God meets us in our brokenness, in our failure, in our emptiness, in our inability to change ourselves. Verse 7 says, blessed are the merciful. Oh, people talk like they love mercy, but you know, in reality, we love revenge. We look down on people needing mercy. And that's often true for the church as well. We talk a lot about mercy and grace, but let me tell you, not much mercy and grace shows up when we disagree with one another. But you know who really is merciful? The one who, in a time of total desperation, received mercy. For in our brokenness, when we're at the end of our rope, God meets us with mercy and thus fills us with mercy. Then verse 8, blessed are the poor in heart. We used to think that purity of heart showed great character. We don't think so much that way anymore. We laugh at those who are naive about purity. We consider it a flaw not to be willing to cut some corners and business, how impractical can you be? We don't want friends with too many scruples. They're a little hard to deal with sometimes. We've come to think something is wrong with a person who really loves purity. But folks, God meets people who are considered abnormal and broken and weird because they long to be pure. In verse 9, we read, blessed are the peacemakers. Not many people aspire to be peacemakers these days. We love warriors. We love winners. Peacemaking is painful. The pain of rebuke. The pain of repentance. The pain of sorrow. The pain of forgiveness. The pain of restitution. Being a peacemaker means giving yourself in service to others. There's not much glory in it. There's a lot of hard work which leaves you weary and wounded, and often there's little success. But God knows all about making peace. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross, making peace by the shedding of his blood. And God meets peacemakers 
and their weariness and their brokenness. And finally in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. We American Christians have been blessed with centuries of peace and prosperity. But it has led us astray into some false assumptions. We have come to believe that persecution is the exception for Christians. We quietly assume that people who are persecuted must have done something wrong, and we're not going to do that. And now we see more and more real persecution in the world, people fleeing for their lives and losing their lives and having their families scattered, people being tortured and slaughtered with no relief, countries being completely purged of all Christians. Persecution is a messy part of believing. We don't know what to do with this truth. We want to feel it couldn't happen to us. We want to feel it won't happen because, uh, why? Because we're immune? Because we're better? Because God wouldn't let it happen here? Oh no, we have no such promise from God. No such guarantee, but we do have promises. Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Or Jesus says in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. For you see, even in our darkest hour, God meets us in our brokenness. He never abandons his own. Even in the midst of the fire or the sword, instead he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. God meets us even in those most broken, hopeless, deadly, desperate times. The Beatitudes are so simply spoken, they're quite easy to remember. You could probably memorize them this afternoon if you wanted to. But they're so profound that there's no end to to contemplation of them. John Stott summarizes these truths pretty well. Let me read you this that he writes. He says, the kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty. To little children, humble enough to receive it, not to soldiers who boast they can obtain it by their own prowess. In our Lord's own day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were rich, so rich in merit that they thank God for their accomplishments. Nor was it the zealots who, demand, who dreamed of establishing the kingdom of God by blood and sword. No, in the Lord's day, those who were, were rich, or who, those who were received were the publicans and prostitutes. The, the rejects of human society who knew they were so poor they had nothing to offer, nothing they could achieve. All they could do was to cry out to God for mercy, and he heard them. This morning I commend these Beatitudes to you, not just for these few moments of your attention to this sermon, but for quiet hours of reflection. And what should you learn from them? I think at least these two things. That Jesus promises his followers all the joys of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus meets us with that blessed joy where we least expect it 
in the midst of our brokenness and hopelessness. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the Beatitudes, these wonderful statements that sum up so many great truths. I pray that you would um, embed them deep in our hearts, that we would think about them, meditate on them, and learn, Lord, what it is that you have to say to us here beyond what we can describe in just a few moments. May they become the stuff of our life until our lives conform to this and our expectations conform to these things. Oh, Father, we can't pull that off. We need your grace to work that in us, and we ask you to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll find your bulletin, there's an affirmation of faith in there.